Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Last year's cyber attack is estimated to have cost Sony hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. It was a state-sanctioned attack that has many Americans asking, if that is what North Korea can do to a movie company, how vulnerable is our critical infrastructure? How, how vulnerable is our electric grid? Throughout history, the weapon of choice for warring nations has evolved. Soon after the invention of the airplane at the turn of the 20th century, countries involved in the various conflicts that battered the globe started to use them to drop bombs from the sky. After the Manhattan Project and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the 1940s, the conversation shifted to the use of nuclear weapons. So what's the latest, potentially deadly weapon that technology has delivered? According to journalist and author David E. Sanger, it's cyber. When we initially developed the World Wide Web, it was just a way of communicating back and forth. Then people started using it for espionage. And over time, as they did with the airplane, they began to arm it. David has been a journalist at the New York Times for 36 years. During his tenure at the paper, he has served as a foreign correspondent, Washington correspondent, and also the White House correspondent. Now, he is a national security correspondent. His newest book, the Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age examines the emergence of cyber weapons as the primary way for states to attack and undermine each other and how this has altered geopolitics forever. So we need a complete rethink about the connection between this technology and democracy. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this is Chips With Everything. When I wrote my last book that dealt some on this subject six years ago, there were a handful of countries that had sophisticated cyber capabilities. Today, they're probably between 30 and 40. My producer, Danielle Stevens, sat down with David in early July 2018 when he was in London to launch the book. So I've done a, a range of different jobs, but I covered the White House primarily at the end of the Clinton administration through George Bush's time. I was with George Bush on 9-11. Uh, and then, of course, covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So you've, you've David quickly became accustomed to covering conflicts in his reporting. But about 10 years ago, he saw a new kind emerge. Well, the biggest change uh, I noticed came toward the end of the Bush administration, when President Bush clearly could not 
go and attack Iran for a growing nuclear weapons capability. The United States was just wrapped up in an Iraq war that was going bad and an Afghan war that was going bad. And so if he was going to stop the Iranian program, his only two choices were diplomacy and some form of sabotage. It became clear to me at the end of the Bush administration that the Israelis, not certain who would be the next president, was clear that they wanted the capability to be able to bomb Iran. President Bush turned them down. He said, look, we're trying another method, and we'd like to engage all of you with it. And it involves using computer code to go in to try to sabotage the main fuel production plant for uh, Iran's uranium production. So the Israelis and the Americans began working together on that project, which ultimately became known in the United States as Operation Olympic Games. That was the code name for it, partly to stop the Iranians, but partly also to engage the Israelis in a project that did not involve blowing things up and starting a war with Iran. Using cyber technology as a weapon is a relatively new concept. But as David explains, there have been several key moments that demonstrate how this development represents a dangerous shift in geopolitics. We have seen, uh, largely since Olympic Games, uh, a number of sophisticated attacks. The Iranians came back with some fairly sophisticated attacks against Saudi Aramco that melted down a lot of their computer systems, against American banks. The North Koreans, of course, attacked Sony Pictures when they did not like uh, a movie called The Interview, which envisioned the assassination of Kim Jong-un. We've seen the Chinese use very sophisticated attacks to steal data, and of course, we've seen the Russians in the meddling in the election. My first memory of things in aviation was seeing the first Wright airplane demonstrated for the Signal Corps in 1908 at uh, Fort Myers, outside of Washington. So I took the In the summer of 1909, the U.S. Army bought its first aircraft from the Wright brothers launching a new kind of conflict in which weapons could be dropped from the sky. Throughout his book, David draws comparisons between cyber weapons and the more traditional, like military aircraft and, later, the nuclear option. This is the record. Endless man-hours of work. Two B-29s, two atomic bombs, three days apart. But there's a big difference. So far, there's no evidence that cyber weapons have caused a single human fatality. So are they really comparable? I argue in the book that for cyber, we're sort of more like the end of World War I or the interwar period. We've armed the device, but we have no idea what its ultimate potential is. So yes, we've had no deaths from cyber so far. I can't imagine that's going to continue because sooner or later, somebody's going to be turning off the power and it will turn off hospitals and so forth, and you will find out there were deaths. There may have been already, and we simply don't know about it. We've seen that happen already a bit in Ukraine, where the Russians went in, and in at least two cases, closed down entire electric power networks. What is clear is that Snowden's revelations have triggered an intense national debate. Committee meetings here will soon begin and some of America's most secretive surveillance programs are now the talk of this town. 
In chapter three of his new book, David discusses the Edward Snowden revelations and how a relatively cheap piece of software was able to scrape some of the National Security Agency's deepest secrets. The story divided the nation. Many were disgusted that Snowden would put the country at risk, while others were disgusted that the government had these secrets to keep. In the book, David considers how feasible it is to strike the right balance between privacy and security. Is there some perfect equilibrium where the government is able to protect people from cyber attacks, but people feel comfortable with how their personal information is being used? Snowden had committed to the United States that he would protect its information. He clearly violated his own commitments. Now, we can debate whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, whether or not he was a hero or a villain. People in Washington, by and large, they'd uh, like to throw him in jail for the rest of his life. If you go out to Silicon Valley, they will tell you that he revealed programs that they needed to learn about because it turned out that the NSA was getting up inside Google's own servers around the world. And many Silicon Valley companies began to build protections against that. What I say in the book is that in the end, Snowden did not teach us very much about what the U.S. government was doing to go spy on its own citizens, which is what I think was, he said anyway, was his motivating factor. He did teach us a lot about the NSA's techniques about breaking into systems abroad. In federal court, a federal magistrate judge last week ordered Apple to provide a reasonable technical assistance to the FBI in order to provide access to the perpetrator's iPhone. Apple opposes the order, given the concerns. One of David's first references to Silicon Valley in the book is when he compares its relationship with the US government as a divorced couple living on opposite coasts, sending snippy messages. The companies in Silicon Valley are on a different wavelength than the government. So think back to the Cold War. During the Cold War, there was a common enemy, the United States and Britain together, along with some others, were fighting the Soviet Union. The big companies that were helping the United States build the weaponry of that period, they didn't question whether the weapon systems they built were moral, immoral. They didn't say they wouldn't work for the US government. Their entire business was about working for the US government. Today, it's much more complex. These companies don't view themselves as belonging to a certain nationality. They view themselves as international. Secondly, Google's main clients are not the US government, the way Boeing's or Lockheed's were or something. They are, in fact, you and me and people around the world. And those people are suspicious that because Google is an American company or Apple is an American company or Microsoft is an American company, that the US government is up inside their systems and recording their information and using that uh, against them. And the companies are in the odd position of having to show some distance from both the US intelligence agencies and from the Pentagon. After the break, we look ahead a few chapters to the 2016 US presidential election and what it means for democracy. We are learning very quickly that the Chinese, the Russians, some NATO members that are moving toward uh, greater authoritarian governments, they are all using 
the power of the internet to suppress dissent. So we need a complete rethink about the connection between this technology and democracy. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. In this week's Books Podcast, the Books team gets into the holiday spirit with all our summer reading tips. Plus, we've tracked down the perfect literary accompaniment to the World Cup, it's a Natural by Ross Raisin, who also happens to have written the handy guide to getting started as a writer. So whether you want to spend your holiday consuming or creating, tune in to this week's Books Podcast. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, we heard from author and New York Times journalist David Sanger, who recently launched his book, the Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age. This book is being published at a time when the US public and many in the political sphere are still reeling from the revelation that the Russians were able to hack into the Democratic National Committee servers and steal precious data, which they then went on to leak. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. This was not the first time the DNC had been victims of a breach. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere. But history doesn't seem to have offered a strong enough deterrent. The DNC is a particularly potent question because the Watergate break-in took place against the Democratic National Committee. And if you go down in the basement of the DNC, they still have an old file cabinet there and it was broken into by the Watergate burglars. Right next to it is a tiny sliver of a machine that is the server the Russians got into. When the Russians began to go into the DNC and two separate Russian intelligence agencies did this, one of them was in for months before it was even detected. Uh, and it took the FBI forever to even convince the DNC after they saw the evidence of this that the DNC had a problem. In fact, when the first FBI agent to be assigned to the case called the DNC to speak to somebody about uh, who ran their computer programs, he was connected to the help desk. David's book goes on to explain why the DNC was so complacent when it came to protecting this data. Because they couldn't envision that a foreign power was even interested in getting into the campaign. And it wasn't just the DNC. You know, the United States was so focused on a cyber Pearl Harbor, an attack on the 
electric grid from Boston to Washington or San Francisco to L.A. that wiped the country out, that the idea of a more subtle cyber attack aimed at the foundations of our democracy hadn't even really crossed anybody's minds. Every single thing that Vladimir Putin ultimately did to the United States, he tested out first in Ukraine. The DNC was made aware of the hacking of its systems by the FBI during the campaign, but didn't fight back. In fact, as David writes, this has been common practice. Nations like the US have so far viewed cyber weaponry as more of a passive-aggressive tool rather than a route to a situation that might require military intervention. It's because the United States is so vulnerable to counterattack that most presidents, and Barack Obama was the prime example, are cautious about striking back too hard. In the case of the Russia attack, uh, once President Obama was aware in July and August of 2016 of what was happening, there was a lot of discussion of the things they could go do to Vladimir Putin. But President Obama decided in the end, well, supposing we did that, and we did it before the election, and then Putin comes back on election day and actually tries to manipulate votes or change the vote counts that get reported to uh, television and radio, just does something to disrupt the election. Wouldn't that play to what Donald Trump, the candidate, was saying at the time, which was, this election is rigged? In addition, we will improve the Department of Defense's cyber capabilities. A new threat, a new problem, very expensive, and we're not doing very well with cyber. Hillary Clinton Throughout his career, David has witnessed how several presidents have handled national threats. So how has the current president dealt with the possibility of cyber attacks? He got off to a relatively good start in the White House by hiring two people. One is his Homeland Security Advisor, the other is the White House Cybersecurity Advisor, who were quite experienced in cyber. Tom Bossert, the Homeland Security Advisor, had worked in the Bush administration, knew the topic well. And then for the cyber coordinator, he had hired America's top cyber warrior from the National Security Agency. When John Bolton came in as National Security Advisor a few uh, months ago, the first thing he did was oust Mr. Bossard. And the second thing he did was eliminate the position of cybersecurity coordinator. Most members of Congress still think it's fairly cute to say, oh, I really don't understand this stuff. My grandchildren understand it. I talk to them. But could you imagine in the 50s or 60s a politician saying, oh, I don't really understand this new nuclear weapon stuff. Maybe my kids will understand it. That would not be an acceptable view. And it tells you that they don't fully understand the nature of the dangers. For the past four or five years, Cyber has been the number one threat that the intelligence community has put at the top of its annual threat assessment to the Congress. And while cyber was missing from it up through 2007, the past few years, it's been ahead of terrorism, it's been ahead of nuclear proliferation, it's been the number one threat. Commentators have argued that the 2016 U.S. presidential election proves that democracy as we once knew it is gone, and that in essence, the U.S., and indeed the whole world, is suffering a democracy crisis. Well, we had a, a misaligned thought in the early days of the internet. The more communication we had, the more people are on the internet, the more it will undercut authoritarian governments. And he was thinking of the Communist Party of China. What we've discovered since is that 
cyber is also the authoritarian's dream. We are learning very quickly that the Chinese, the Russians, some NATO members that are moving toward uh, greater authoritarian governments, they are all using the power of the internet to suppress dissent. So we need a complete rethink about the connection between this technology and democracy. There is no perfect solution here. Because we have developed this weapon ourselves, we ought to be able to figure out how to control it. But we also developed nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, and we don't have perfect solutions to controlling them by any means. One first step is to begin to develop some norms about how we will not use these weapons, similar to the Geneva Conventions about things we would not do against civilians. The problem is, if you went to the American intelligence agencies or the British intelligence agencies and said, can we sign on to this new set of norms? They'd probably say, well, let's wait a minute. We've had some elections we've had to go in and meddle with. We might have a situation where it's better to unplug a country from the grid than to bomb it. And that may be the future. The future may be that cyber gets built into every single war plan that's already happening in the United States. We suspect it's long been the case with Russia and China. And the technology is so cheap and easy to acquire that it's not as if other countries won't go that way. When I wrote my last book that dealt some on this subject six years ago, there were a handful of countries that had sophisticated cyber capabilities. Today, they're probably between 30 and 40. Around the world, we face rogue regimes, terrorist groups, and rivals like China and Russia that challenge our interests, our economy, and our values. In confronting these horrible dangers, we know that weakness is the surest path to conflict, and unmatched power is the surest means to our true and great defense. I'd like to thank David Sanger for joining us this week. There will be a link to his new book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age, in this week's episode description on The Guardian website. As always, I want to hear what you think. Drop me a line at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. 
dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.